0: Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Well, as I mentioned, we're still in 2 Samuel, we're still in the life and times of King David and others. I wanted to confess something before we start. Um, I like having pretty flowers in the house. Um, You might think that if you ever see me with a bunch of flowers that I'm being a romantic husband buying it for Charlotte. No, 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 no. We've got very different taste in flowers, and I'll be honest with you, I buy the ones that I like, because if she wants flowers, she can get her own flowers. What I like, (laughs) especially, well, you you know how it is, gents especially, you try your best and then you get shot down, and that happens enough times, and you learn it's best not to try, no. Um, Seriously though, um, my favourite flowers to have in the house are daffodils, so it's not something we can have all year round. But I love bringing home a bunch of daffodils that have got the closed head on them, the bulb. Is that what it's called? The the trumpet? Something like that. It's closed. You put them in the water, and maybe they start to move a little bit. But by the time you wake up the next morning, you come downstairs, and they've opened fully. And one of the marvelous things you get when you put these daffodils, specifically in a vase in my kitchen, is the sun coming in through the patio doors, And it's not just this massive yellow trumpet that is looking you in the face. It's just yellow all around. The glory shines, it bounces. We've got white walls, we've got glass tape, you know, everything just becomes this golden, glorious yellow of the daffodils. And it's marvellous. And as many bunches I can buy, when it's time, when it's seasonal, I will buy and I will just put around the place because I love it. And there's a smell to it as well that just reminds me of growing up and picking daffodils to eat. Do you remember, Ems, picking daffodils to eat? Um, Yeah, we were told in school by our headmaster that there was part of the daffodil you could eat and part of it that was poisonous. I've forgotten, so I can't pass that information on. So whatever you do, kids, don't eat daffodils. Um, But this is what happens, isn't it? That that glory lasts for a few moments. There's going to be a little demonstration of something similar happening. The the glory lasts for a few moments, for a few days, perhaps. And then you start to see something else. It's not this glorious yellowness anymore. There are tinges of brown and darkness. You see, it finally opens and it's beautiful. And then one day, you come home and you open the front door and it's not this yellow that's bouncing around the place it's this smell, this stench of horrible flowers. I don't know why daffodils in particular stink when they die. And you can tell as soon as you open the door, they need throwing in the bin. Because what was glorious, that's just how it happens. They fade and the beauty and the glory goes and it is replaced by something which is disgusting. Well, now these were supposed to start dying. There you go. In case you've never seen a flower dying before they start turning into something quite horrible and ugly. And that glory just simply does not last. And I think that's what we see as we get to the end of David's life, as we get to the end of the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, is that we've had this glorious story of a king rising up, ruling over, uniting a nation. There's this description of that king at rest and at peace, and his whole country following him in that. It's horrible, isn't it, when it finally um, ends. Um, and we were led last week um, to this point in David's life and David's story where he's been challenged by Absalom. They've gone out into the wilderness. They fought a battle. And now David is about to cross back over Um A very short war, one battle in fact, um, but he's crushed it and the king has been invited home. And it's an opportunity for the reinstatement of everything that had been before, for that glory to be recaptured. Will it be as wonderful as it was before? Well, I think if you turn with me to chapter 20 and chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, you'll see that, David's life, David's kingdom, is exactly like the daffodils that I buy. It's exactly like those roses that were up on the screen. It's actually exactly the same as every single authority structure, power structure that has ever existed in human history. There is a high point, and then there is an either slow or rapid decline as everything unravels, and the stench of death is to be found. In the story, we're going to notice it in lots of different ways different characters who in some way show us and undermine that glory and that power and that authority of David. And the first person is a fella named Sheba, chapter 20, verse 1. Now, there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba. We've said a few times through 1 and 2 Samuel that the author doesn't tell us what to think just leaves things out there for us to make up our own minds. Was that a good thing that they did? Was that a bad thing? Are they a goody or a baddie? We don't need to ask those questions about Sheba. We know he's a worthless man. He's a worthless man, the son of Betri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. It was a battle cry, a rallying cry for people to start another rebellion behind him. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bituri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. You'd be forgiven for thinking that Absalom's death, that fine-looking, shrewd, maneuvering young man, that having dealt with him, that David's throne would be safe once more, safe forever, back in his possession. But no sooner has Absalom been dispatched, that coup has been averted, than there's another challenger rising his hand, his head, Sheba. Not someone who had skillfully stolen the heart of the people, but a man, the story tells us, who was worthless. Now, this should show us something of how unstable David's throne is at this point. That a nobody, worse than a nobody someone whose reputation does go before him, and it's not a good one, he now dares to stand up against King David to call the people to reject their king and to follow him instead. It's, it's not a glorious picture of the king on his throne, is it? Let me deal with the suspense. It doesn't end well for Sheba. If you fast forward... Uh, through the chapter chapter 22 he's held up in a city a fortified town and we learn that he is um, well he's dealt with in a pretty severe way it says this verse 22 of chapter 20 they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bitri and threw it out to Joab so he Joab blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city um he dies pretty quickly in the story, but not before he's done his part in undermining the king. Do you see that? Not before he's sown the seeds of doubts in our minds and in the minds of the people who were involved in the story. But David is no longer that untouchable, unquestionable sovereign. Sheba shows us that the throne isn't quite as safe, isn't quite as secure as it had been when David was in his heyday. It's the first chink in the armor, the first sign, symbol of decay. The next is someone called Amasa. Now we've met Amasa before. He was the one who was actually in charge of Absalom's army in the rebellion, but David had remarkably forgiven him, shown grace to him, hadn't punished him for leading the troops into battle, and more than that, had appointed him over the head of David's own military now. Back in chapter 19, he was supposed to be replacing Joab. So when Sheba uh, Sheba, uh, reared his worthless head, this is what King David decides to do. Verse four, he says to Amasa, call the men of Judah together for me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. He's been graciously forgiven for his part in the rebellion. More than that, he's been given this power and this authority to lead David's troops. And the very first time he's called on by David to exercise that authority, what does he do? Well, it's not direct disobedience to what the king instructs, but there doesn't seem to be a sense of urgency in a massa to follow his leader. He doesn't exactly follow the orders down to the T. He delays. Maybe he's questioning. Maybe he's deciding, well, actually, do I want to stick with David? Or do I want to jump ship and follow Sheba? Let me deal with the suspense. What happens with Amasa? The next scene is David saying, well, if you're not up to it, I'm going to send someone else, Abishai, He's dispatched to take care of Sheba and there's absolutely no way back for Amasa. Verses 9 and 10, he comes across Joab. Joab says to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not observe the sword that Joab had in his hand. So Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow and he died. Doesn't end well for him. He dies as well, but not before he's played his part in helping us see, sowing the seeds, revealing the chinks in undermining the king's armor, the doubt in our minds. That David, just because he has commanded or instructed something, doesn't necessarily mean we have to do it anymore. Doesn't necessarily mean that. His word is no longer law. He may be sitting on the throne, but there's wiggle room for those under him to act over and above what he has instructed. Amasa shows us that David's edicts aren't quite as binding as they had been. Another chink in the armor, another clue to the glory leaving, the decay, the wilting setting in. The next person is Joab. Now, Joab we've seen in all manner of circumstances. We've praised him, we've... um, done the opposite of praising him we've seen how he's a man of action he's a passionate man not necessarily a man who um does what he's told but does what he thinks is best in the interest of the king now set the scene he's been sidelined he's the one who has been replaced by david for his numerous infractions you remember um he took absalom's life in direct contradiction to David's instruction. Then he gives David a dressing down for mourning the death of his own son in front of all the troops. He has gone in the story from being David's trusted right-hand man who is dispatched to deal with the Uriah problem to being not even number two, but to being number three or four, yesterday's news. Amasa had his job. And when Amasa failed, David didn't go to Joab. He went to Abishai in verse 6. But Joab doesn't care what the king says anymore. That's why he takes it upon himself to deal with Amasa. And we read in verse 10 these words. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Berches, Joab, who's leading the charge here. And one of Joab's young men, not King David's troop, one of Joab's young men, took his stand and said, Whoever favours Joab and whoever is for David, notice whose name is first, let him follow Joab. And all the people, verse thirteen, went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. He's He's outright rebelling here, I think, in a sense, not in his words, but in his actions. He's not arguing um, for David's removal, but he's certainly ignoring David's decision-making. He's the one who ends up leading the troops to the fortified city of Abel to deal with Sheba. How does it end for Joab? Well, actually, it ends quite well for Joab. If you go to the end of chapter 20, we read this little review of things as they stand, and this is what it says. Verse 23, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. He's the top name on the list. His name actually comes in that list before King David's. He is, without speaking words of challenge against the king, he is living a life which undermines King David. He's played his part in stripping King David of the rights that he should have in appointing important positions, of dishing out authority. Just because David is king in this story, it doesn't mean that he is the one who gives the titles. He may sit on the throne, but it's up to whoever is out there to decide who takes what jobs. Joab shows us that the king... Is kind of just a little puppet. That he's a figurehead and nothing more at this point. That he's a quaint callback to a bygone age. Turn over to chapter 21 and we meet the Gibeonites. They're the next group that show us that David's authority and glory is ebbing away. Uh, This, by the way, isn't necessarily in chronicle order, but the story is included to help us see another example of just how this returned king is wilting. Chapter 21, verses one to six. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. If you go back to the book of Joshua, you'll read the story of how they got um, protection and they got a, an oath, a promise from the leaders in Israel that they would be able to live amongst them and never be harmed. Uh, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonite said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. They're basically saying, look, you know, not for us to say. But David presses and he says, What do you say that I shall do for you? How can I make things right? And they say to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, on the, cho- uh, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. There's a few things in here that just mark and show us of David's waning influence. He's got no power to affect prosperity in the land. There's There's famine. There's a lengthy drought. He learns that the only thing that he can do is to go to the Gibeonites and promise to do for them whatever they ask. He is in a compromised position there. He has to do what he's told by them. And when we find out what they've asked them, they ask him to break the law. They ask him to punish Saul's sons for what Saul has done. Sadly, David consents. And there's no suspense there. You read the next couple of verses, it describes exactly what happens, how seven descendants of Saul are handed over and horribly mistreated and put to death. Think about it. The king is supposed to be the one who's administering justice. He's being drawn into doing things which his own law describes as detestable in order to maintain peace. You see, the seeds are sown. The crop is being harvested. Just because he is king, it does not mean that there is justice and peace in the land. In fact, in this instance, it means the exact opposite. The king is not in here as glorious as he was before. One last example. Flick to the end of 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15, and there's a description of of a couple of more fights, a couple of more wars. See what you make of this. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. Sounds kingly, sounds exactly like David on his way up to the throne, doesn't it? David grew weary. Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zerah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this again, there was war with the Philistines at Gob, then Sibachai the Heshedite struck down Saph, who was also one of the descendants of the giants. Then there was war again with the Philistines at Gob and Elhan, the son of ja- Oregim. The Bethlehemite struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. He was also descended from the giants and when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemi, David's brother, struck him down. You just see, these four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David, by the hands of his servants. When David rose to prominence, when he rose to fame in Israel, what was it for doing? It was for killing Goliath. It was for defeating a giant. Now, there's wars breaking out everywhere, and he's having to invite other people, or rely on and depend on other people to kill those giants for him. He's not someone who defeats the enemies any longer. He's someone who needs to be wrapped in cotton wool, sidelined, protected, and having other people do his work for him. So all the way through these stories, what we're seeing time and time and time and time again is that David's beautiful, glorious flower has wilted or is in the process of wilting it's decaying it is dying and all the while i think we're being given a nudge to the story of jesus aren't we the story of someone else who was on a throne but left that throne room to go into the wilderness to fight a battle before taking his place again on that throne If you read the New Testament, you'll see over and over and over again this language of Jesus leaving his authority and his power in heaven only to take it back up again in his ascension. It's everywhere. When David goes out and comes back, we see that it's not quite what it used to be. But in fact, when we look and we turn to Jesus, we see it's far more glorious than it ever was in the first place. David's return was marked by questions. Yet Jesus' throne, we're told, is unshakable. There's no sense of hurry, get back across the Jordan in case someone else rises up against you. It's his and it's his alone. David's words when he returned lacked authority and yet Jesus is the one who still retains that power and authority. He speaks and it still is today. David couldn't give out those positions, those titles. He couldn't decide who was who in his kingdom and in his parliament anymore. Jesus is still the one who retains the power and the authority that he has always had to to give status that sticks, to call us children of the Most High, to appoint us and for there to be no debate about it. David had lost his power, we've seen this for a while in his life, to administer justice. His kingdom, therefore, lacked real peace. Jesus, now on his throne, ensures justice and peace. David needed help to overcome his enemies, didn't he? Jesus does not need help, but he invites us to enjoy the victory. Jesus' return to his throne is so much better than David's. It's so much better than all the empires and authority structures that we have seen rise up. No matter how glorious they are, they always end in decay. And yet Jesus returned to his throne with greater power, with greater authority, with even more glory than before. Angela read it to us, but this is how our brothers and sisters in the early church understood it. They said about Jesus being in the very nature God, not considering that something to be used to his own advantage, how he left the throne room, making himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then the return, verse 9, in Philippians chapter 2, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That what? That it would be a pale comparison of what it was like before? That it would be a kingdom of sorts, but there would be chinks and death everywhere? No. That at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father can you see how when jesus returns to his throne it's even more glorious than before it's even less in question there's even less doubt about him being the one who owns that throne and rules from that throne there's no wilting with jesus and his glory there is if you like eternal bloom we don't just need to look at David's story. We could all think about empires that have risen. Powerful people who have come and who have gone. And I want to encourage you this morning to consider who, whose power and whose authority are you living under and are you living for. There are a couple of options. We could be overcome by the power and authority of someone in our world, outside of us. And maybe they rule us with fear. Maybe they, you love that power on authority and you want them to stay in that position forever because it's good for you. We need to see from David's story and from the rest of human history that that power does not last. That power does not last. So if it's, if it's another authority structure outside of you or government, something like that, and that's who you live for, that's who commands your obedience that is who controls how you think and how you act you need to know that that will not last if you're putting your hope in it it will not last the other option of course is that power and that authority is yours your own that you're living at the moment and you think do you know what i've got it all i can do this i'm glorious i'm like the daffodils in sammy's kitchen i'm shining my glory around i can i can wield my words I can wield my authority. What I say goes. There's a warning here for you as well. That that power, that that authority, that that rule and that reign that you may very well have will not last. And there's an offer. And the third option is to live under the authority of Jesus. Now, people have maligned that authority right through the centuries. They've said, Following someone who dies, that is madness. Following someone who is crushed and broken and buried, that is foolishness. But we know something more, don't we? We know that when Jesus went out to the wilderness, he didn't come back with his tail between his legs to a broken kingdom, a shadow of its former glory. We know, in the words of Philippians 2, that he was exalted to the highest place, that he occupies that space, not just in our lives, but over all the universe, all created things at which every single knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. There's no hint, there's no sense that that authority will diminish In fact, the only way we can understand it is that Jesus' influence, his power, his authority is going to grow until it's fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. So we've got this choice, haven't we? Do we continue to live under a David-like structure? One that is powerful, but is going to fade? Do we choose to live under our own authority and believe the hype that we are everything, the be-all and the end-all? Or do we recognize that Jesus actually is the true authority and not an authority that's going to fade, but an authority that is going to last? The answer, if you're wondering, should be obvious. Which of those we need to choose? Which of those we need to trust in? Which of those we need to, like David, at the end of our life say, do you know what? It's not my kingdom, God. It's not me and my power, but it's Jesus. You, are my rock and my fortress, you are my deliverer. As the petals started to fall off, as the stench of death in his kingdom grew and grew, this is what he realized, that God was his shield, that God was the horn of his salvation, his stronghold and his refuge, his saviour who rescued him from all violence, that there is one name to be called on and it's not his name, It's not the name of whoever's going to replace him on the throne, Solomon, whose kingdom was even greater than David's, but it's the name of the Lord. It's Jesus' name, the one who is worthy to be praised, the one who will, who does, and always has saved us from our enemies. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that those who are in power over us at any time, Lord, we thank you that that power is temporary. Because we know just by surveying recent history, let alone longer history, that power does corrupt, humanly speaking. Lord, that we don't want that power to be settled in institutions or in people. Lord, we thank you for the fact that the power isn't ours always. That that wanes, that fades, that goes away. We thank you most of all, Lord God, that Jesus' power is not diminished by death. But Lord, in rising to life again, by sitting on that throne, when he he returns fully, we will see it more and more and more. Lord, help us. Help us not to idolize authority structures. Help us not to fear authority structures. Help us not to fall into self-sufficiency and self-dependency. But help us to live life under that rock that David describes at the end of his the king on the throne that lasts, the one in whom there are no chinks in his armour, nor wilting flowers, no stench of decay, but there is life, there is glory, there is power, there is justice, there is peace. Lord, some of our eyes this morning are hidden from that. Some of our gaze is turned elsewhere. Oh, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see Jesus on his throne. Eternally so, ruling and reigning for our good, for our prosperity, for our joy, and for your glory. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.